Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. Well, this is a real treat. This is an interview that I have been looking forward to for literally years. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last seven years or so, you know the name Paul Manafort. And chances are that narrative, whatever you know about Paul Manafort, is from people other than him. Well, for the next hour, you are going to get to hear from the horse's mouth all about the items you've heard about in the news, what's true, what's exaggerated, what's completely fabricated, and we'll get his take on a number of areas that he has a great deal of expertise in. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome longtime political consultant, former chairman of the Trump presidential campaign and author of the forthcoming book, Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, But Not Silenced, the one and only Paul Manafort. Paul, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I know this is one of your first radio interviews. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure to be with you again. Uh, Paul, I, I think a lot of people know you because of your association with Donald Trump, and I think most people first came to hear your name during the 2016 campaign. How did you get to know Donald Trump originally? Well, we've, I actually knew Trump going back to the early 80s. Uh, in, in 1980, my, uh, um, my partner, Roger Stone, uh, was the, the Reagan for President coordinator for the Northeast. And uh, in that capacity, Roger got to know Trump. Uh, and, uh, and when Reagan was elected and we then started Black Men Up Fort Stone, which is a political consulting and government affairs firm in Washington, uh, Trump was one of our first clients. And although Roger spent most of the time with him, I got to know him you know, pretty well in, in the early 80s. Your experience in politics did not begin with the 2016 presidential campaign. You were a pretty experienced Republican political operative going back more than four decades. I'm wondering, uh, explain to folks who may not be familiar with your background in presidential politics, what you did on the Ford campaign in 76 and what your role was in electing Ronald Reagan in 1980. Sure. In the Ford campaign, I worked at the White House and – Actually, for uh, for Dick Cheney, who was the chief of staff at that time, uh, uh, and when Ford decided to run for president, I ended up go- going over to the campaign and working with Jim Baker, who was the chairman of the uh, campaign manager of the campaign, and Stu Spencer, who was the consultant. And uh, I did a bunch of the con- delegate work at the conventions, coordinating uh, what was a very d- difficult nomination fight. And then in 1980, uh, I handled the convention states and ran the convention for uh, Governor Reagan. Fast forward to 2016. You've done a lot of things in American politics. You've done a lot of things in politics overseas, which we'll get into. How did you come to work on the Trump campaign in 2016? Well, yeah, I, I got involved because Trump uh, Trump was a one-man uh, campaign by himself. He was the candidate. He was the campaign manager. He was the communications director. He was the pollster. Uh, he was the scheduler. And, and he did an incredible job. I've never seen one man serving that many functions successfully. Uh, but what happened was, as he was winning the primaries against the other 16 candidates, he wasn't paying attention to the process, process of electing delegates to the national convention. And a lot of the states that were, had a had a two-tiered system. We have primaries were one thing, but delegate selection was another thing. Cruz understood that. He had a bunch of experienced convention operatives in his campaign, 
<clears throat> and Trump was winning the primaries and Cruz was winning the delegates. And, uh, and it was starting to become apparent that uh, you know, if Trump didn't get enough committed vote to vote support at the fir- on the first ballot, he would, uh, we'd go to a second ballot and the floor would be filled with non-Trump delegates. <clears throat> and Trump didn't understand that. I mean, this was a detail. He thought the primary, he thought he was getting cheated by the Republican National Committee and the rules of the party. Uh, but once he found it out after meeting with Reince Priebus, he realized he needed somebody who understood that, that arcane practice. And uh, through a variety of different means, uh, Roger talking to Trump, uh, another friend of mine talking to Trump, uh, he called me up and asked me to get involved. And I did. And quickly, uh, we started to, you know, we started to cover that problem. And, and I, my role grew to the point where he then asked me to be the chairman. And I pulled together the campaign for the general election. You became the chairman. Obviously, you were targeted by the press and a number of other entities almost from the uh, almost from the beginning. It was reported in several sources that you had agreed to work on the Trump campaign in 2016 for free. Was that true? Yes. Yeah, I knew Trump and I knew that uh, Trump understood that if he's paying people, they're staff. (laughs) And I also know that he doesn't particularly listen to staff if he if he's got an opinion on things. And so I feel, felt the only way he was going to listen to me, and I told him this, was if he was getting my expertise as a volunteer who wanted him to win and didn't work for him. And uh, he understood my point. Most people didn't understand that point, but he understood it exactly. And uh, and as a result, I was able to have the kind of frank conversations that nobody else in the campaign was having other than his daughter and, uh, and his family. And uh, would you say that he that that worked? Did he actually listen to the advice that you were giving? Uh, yes, I, I mean, he always had an opinion, uh, but he he understood my value and he understood that I, I had a skill set that was important and I had a lot of experience and uh, more than anybody else on the campaign, frankly. Uh, and he knew that, uh, and and so he would have listened anyhow, probably. But it, I think it helped him pay attention more and. I didn't always get my way, but he listened. And uh, when I would be able to persuade him, you know, we were, he would agree. He, and he gave me a lot of authority. I mean, my role kept changing because he saw that I could handle what had to be done. And there were things that he didn't want to do that, uh, that I, you know, I took the responsibility for, including looking ahead as he was doing what he wanted as a candidate out on the field. Uh, you know, I had to put together a campaign that was going to reach into Washington, reach into uh, the 50 states uh, uh, and would be general election ready uh, because he had a bunch of people supporting him who were not part of the regular system. And they were the reason he won in the end. But th- but without the foundations of the of the establishment, he would have had he would not have won the 2016 election. He would have gotten that, I think, on his own. But I helped facilitate that. And, uh, and put it together. You had this world-famous lobbying and political consulting firm, Black, Manafort, and Stone. Uh, you obviously worked on the Trump campaign in 2016. How was it that the other named partner in this legendary political consulting for- firm, Charlie Black, ended up being sort of the lead never-Trumper among Republicans in the country? <laughs> well, life has strange twists, right? It does indeed. <laughs> Charlie was, by, by the time of the Trump campaign, Charlie was part of the Republican establishment. In fact, he probably epitomizes the Republican establishment in his age bracket now. And uh, 
Uh, I don't know that he was a never Trumper, but uh, he wasn't a Trump fan. And, uh, and, uh, and a lot of the people who were friends of his were the key, were the core of never Trumpers. Uh, and, uh, uh, but, but in the general election, he came on board and, uh, and he did, he did work for the president, president elect. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Paul Manafort, a longtime Republican political consultant, attorney, former chairman of the Trump campaign in 2016, felon as pardoned by President Trump and the author of the of the forthcoming book, Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, But Not Silenced. So, Paul, the book, if people are interested in it, because I'm very interested in reading it, that's not going to be out until August? It's out in August, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or, uh, or Barnes & Noble or Simon & Schuster. All right. Now, um, the thing that you've become best known for over the last four years has been your criminal cases. Do you believe that you were targeted because of your relationship, your affiliation, political, professional with Donald Trump? Well, yes. Um, The the whole legal case that that they brought against me was uh, were on issues that the you know, certain people in the government had already dismissed. I mean, the the fair issue, which was the initial basis for my my uh, firing, uh, my uh, being arrested, was a matter that I had dealt with the fair unit at Department of Justice, and uh, and th- they had we had worked out an understanding. They they th- thought it was a gray area. They didn't think I needed to file, but there was some because it was such an, a hot button topic in uh, in August of 2016. Uh, they wanted me to do a limited disclosure, civil, you know, part of the civil division. There's no criminality. Uh, there were no fines. Uh, we worked out the language. And I get, go into this in the book. And after I had worked out the deal, it was, it was approximately around the time that the special counsel was reported. And one of, uh, one of uh, uh, Andrew Weissman's first jobs as part of as the, the Mueller point guy was to call up Fair and say, uh, I've got the Paul Manafort case. I'm fair now. You're done, and throw out. And he threw out my doc, my agreement with the uh, with Farrah. Now it is possible to be targeted and be selectively prosecuted and still be guilty of the crimes that you are charged with. Do you believe, if you look at the charges uh, both times around, both the charges in uh, Virginia and in the District of Columbia, do you believe that you were guilty? of violating the law, even if this is not something that you would have been prosecuted for, but for your relationship with Donald Trump? Uh, well, I, I, there was a, te- it's a technical issue as to whether I was or not. I, I've accepted responsibility for it. Uh, but for example, on the, the, the tax issues that they brought out me, I had disclosed all that information to the government when I was helping them in a corruption investigation they were doing in Ukraine. Wow. And voluntarily, I sat down with them and gave them all the information that Weissman then, two years later, took dusted the, the dusted off and turned them into criminal charges instead of cooperative information that I was giving them. Uh, so, you know, Weissman, I, 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 but for my relationship in the Trump campaign, there's no way I would have been targeted. I wouldn't have spent two years in jail. You could have done what a lot of other people involved in high-profile prosecutions, especially. You know, I mean, uh, you're in good shape from what it appears, but you're in your 70s. I, I imagine a lot of people in their 70s aren't eager to spend time in federal prison. And you could have chosen to cooperate from the get go, probably cho- and probably avoided any prison sentence at all. 
Instead, you chose to go to trial. Uh, you were you were convicted, and then it, they brought about <laughs> talk about adding insult to injury. They brought about a, a second criminal case. In that case, you chose to prosecute and plead guilty. In that case, one, do I have the chronology of events right in 2018 and 2019? And two, why did you choose to cooperate in that second case after uh, going to trial in the first case? But the first case, I didn't think I was guilty on any of the charges. The first case in Virginia was a very high profile case. Um, and I, I wanted to move the, the venue of the of court because I didn't think in D.C., in Virginia, in Northern Virginia, I could get a fair trial. Well, I couldn't move it. I, the case was had for two and a half. It was, a, it was the, case, the The jury was out for almost a week. The case itself was over three weeks. Uh, so it was a it was a month long case. My name was in the front pages every day. Um, my D.C. case was a month later. Uh, there was no way I felt I could get a jury in D.C., that was not going to uh, already have me con- have me convicted, and in fact, I void we in our voir dire to choose our jurors. Normally, you have uh, you have twenty twenty five jurors that you select uh, twelve from. I had I had a, a hundred and twenty, and I found one juror that was that was not part partisan, uh, and so it was going <laughs> there was no way I was going to get a fair trial, none in the second case, and uh, and they were Weissman was trying to, he, he basically bankrupted me, but in the process, he was also trying to bankrupt my children. And he had included assets that were theirs, that over the course of my, my life, I had given to them. And he was getting all, calling all of this ill-gotten uh, money laundering money, uh, properties. And so I cut a deal to get my kids' properties out of the, out of the forfeiture. Uh, however, in cutting a deal, I didn't. I mean, I agreed not to go to trial. I didn't agree to agree to their narrative. And uh, yeah, I, now the, the media was writing up Trump is going to jail. Manafort's cut a deal. And uh, I knew I was never going to get what they call a 5K letter where the prosecutor says he's been a cooperating witness, which they do when they've gotten you to say what they want you to say. Uh, because what they wanted was me to, take, to give him a narrative that was not true. And I wasn't going to lie. If, and uh, if you and had, so they then threw other charges on me. They said I lied under the in the grand jury, uh, and the judge who was already she might have been sitting at the prosecutor's table as she was so much into their pocket. The judge basically uh, did everything she could to put me in jail for what she thought was going to be the rest of my life. Uh, could you have given them damaging criminal information on President Trump? No, no. I mean, Weissman had a false narrative, and uh, and I would you know I would have had to lie which he was more than willing to let me do, to give him what he wanted. And I wouldn't do that. Obviously, the fact that the prosecution against you used information that you voluntarily provided to the government is a pretty strong indication of how you're going to answer my next question. But would you characterize the Mueller probe and the prosecutors that worked for Mueller, including Andrew Weissman, would you characterize that as a fair prosecution? (laughs) <laughs> maybe in Russia, <laughs> but that'd be about it. <laughs> so what, what else did, what else did the Mueller team do, which you felt was particularly egregious and was not in keeping with a good face pros- with what a good faith prosecution should be? Well, let's put it this way from the start, they indicted me. 
They put through a $10 million bond on me. John Gotti didn't have to pay $10 million to get out of prison for when he was indicted. Uh, they then, the same day they, you know, they put the $10 million bond on me, they put a gag order on me. So I couldn't talk to the press. Then for the next two years, they leaked selectively misinformation that made headlines uh, that convicted me in the court of public opinion. And I couldn't answer any of it. And then when finally, after four bail packages, because I didn't have $10 million, I, I was able to get, make bail through the help of friends and family. Uh, they realized I'd be out of home confinement because until I made bail, I was on home confinement for about five months. And when I finally, it was finally clear that the judge, I had packaged together a bail package that the piece of which the judge had approved in the, in the different submissions. So I collectively had now, they then threw a uh, tamper, witness tampering uh, charge against me for a witness list that didn't exist and a witness that I didn't talk to. Uh, but it was enough to make the judge uh, who was in there on their side, as far as I was concerned, say that she couldn't trust me. I was a danger to the community. And she sent me from court directly to prison where I was put in solitary confinement for a year. And that's one of the great shames about your case, because with a few exceptions, Alan Dershowitz stands out. But with very few other exceptions, I don't remember hearing any civil libertarians or any traditionally liberal defenders of overzealous of. uh, you know, defenders against overzealous prosecution standing up in your defense and saying what was being done to you was wrong. And to me, you don't have to be a Trump supporter to think that it's wrong to target someone be- because of their political affiliation. Uh, did you find that? Did you were you were you disappointed, if not surprised, at the silence from groups like the ACLU and others? Yeah, I, I, yes, I was surprised. In fact, it wasn't just the silence in support of what I was having, but it was almost complicit in in supporting what was being done to me. Um, because it was, I mean, it was not like these were gray areas where my rights were being abused, um, and and there was nothing. Dershowitz was one of the very few, Turley to some degree uh, on on occasion, but that was it. And uh, you know, and the Washington establishment, legal establishment, they were in lockstep. Uh, principally because they were all part of the swamp that Trump was trying to clear out. Yeah, that, that's one of the great shames of the last uh, six years is that when it comes to Donald Trump, his critics just see red. Uh, they almost become unable to have a rational discussion of anything related to Donald Trump. You can't say to them, OK, I know you don't like Donald Trump. I know you'd never vote for him in a thousand years, but take a look at this. Isn't this wrong? What is uh, you mentioned being in solitary confinement for a year because we all know uh, what a threat most 70 year old prisoners happen to happen to be. What's prison like for someone like Paul Manafort, someone that's well known, someone that's used to knowing multiple presidents, wearing custom made suits, working on political campaigns all over the world? What's federal prison like for someone like you? I mean, the solitary confinement was uh about an eight by 10 room, a uh, no windows, a slot in the door for the food tray to be put through it uh, three times a day. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't tell the time from myself because it was, they're all concrete walls and, and, and doors with no windows. Um, in fact, the way I was able to connect with the world other than once a week, being able to see my wife uh, when she'd come visit behind, a, through a plexiglass uh, window was uh, a, 
the one of the old 1960 transistor Sony transistor radios where I had AM service and was able to listen to conservative talk radio. So between the radio and, uh, and preparing for my case, uh, I wild away the 24 hours a day. Mm. And again, we have a lot of, I've always been very proud of uh, the fact that we have a lot of listeners in prison right now. And uh, there's folks listening at the MCC in Manhattan, the MDC in Brooklyn, uh, up at Rikers Island, the tombs in Manhattan, and uh, even state correctional facilities in upstate New York and in New Jersey. So we have a wide listenership in prison, probably some people who are guilty, probably some people that believe uh, they're not guilty almost everybody who thinks they've gotten a raw deal somewhere along the line anything that you'd say to people listening in prison right now who are feeling awfully lonely and are dealing with the same sort of injustices that you feel you might have been having to deal with you know the the the, the craziness of of our, our rules and regulations uh, for, for prisoners for solitary confinement which is inhumane treatment yet rationalizing it as trying to protect the prisoner. It's not protecting a prisoner. It's punishing a prisoner and trying to break him, in my case, where they, they were doing this to try and get me to agree to the narrative so I could get out of there. Um, uh, and, and then just, you know, the, you know the, the, the rules, the CARES Act, uh, the, the first step act that Trump passed as president, which made him a very popular person in the prisons and very popular with the, the minority communities as well. Uh, they, the rules and regulations are clear, but the, the wardens don't follow them and uh, they don't follow them because they, you know, their business is to keep people in jail, not get people out of jail. Uh, you know, they, they, the, the programs that don't exist that are, are heralded as, you know, cha- cha- programs that will change the lives of our prisoners. They don't. I mean, it's uh, the, the whole system is, is not meant to accomplish justice. Uh, and, and I talk about that in the book. And so to those listening from prison, I hear, I, I got your back and we're going to be talking about it. And, and, you know, there are people in prison who are guilty. That's right. And they, and a lot of them admit it. And some of them want to even change, but prison doesn't help them change. So was that the rationale for putting you in solitary? The fact that they were protecting you? Yeah, oh, yes, that was it. They, I mean, they, they, they had to protect me. Now, mind you, when I finally, when the cases were over and I was sent to a, to a prison and not in the, uh, uh, the jail system, I went to, I was supposed to go to a, uh, to a camp because I was a first time offender and uh, didn't have a, a, any violence in my record. Um, but Weissman and Cy Vance arranged to have uh, charges brought for me, get, against me in New York State, or New York City rather. And I go into that in the book. It was all a game. I mean, they knew I, they, they, they didn't think that they could bring the charges. There was the double jeopardy issue. Uh, I, I ended up winning on that and the case was thrown out of New York, but, but, um, that kept me from going to a camp. And instead it sent me to a, a, a low security prison in, in Pennsylvania. And I was in the general population of Pennsylvania. My safety was fine. I, I there was no reason for me to, to be in solitary confinement. And in fact, I, in some respects, uh, a lot of people had my back in the, in the, in Loretto, which is where I was, uh, and thought, you know, that admired what made me being firm in my beliefs and, uh, and, and some of the things that I'd done. 
you uh, were indicted along with uh, Rick Gates, someone who worked for you and was uh, at times described as your partner. Uh, Rick Gates chose to go a different route. He did not choose to go to trial. He chose to become a cooperating witness. Were you disappointed or surprised by this uh, decision by your former business associate? Well, uh, he wasn't a partner, but I I was shocked. And uh, I found in the book I explained why he ended up doing it. And there were reasons because of things he had done in his life that they had known about. And they got him to cooperate is one way of saying it. Lie is another way of saying it. Um, And there was no evidence, factual evidence in my case. I I was convicted after four days of deliberation uh, based on Gates's testimony, even though we discredited him. And and again, I get into this in the book there were there were millions of pages of documents, and and part of Weissman's strategy was to have this case be so, seem to be so enormous. They didn't just charge me with two or three crimes; they charged me with thirty two counts. They, uh, you know, they 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 uh, literally produced millions of pages of documents, and uh, uh, and and they they put on a very long case. Uh, to the point that even the judge in Virginia criticized them. And he said, I know what you're doing. Uh, you can do it, but this is not the way to seek to get justice. And, uh, and so the jury, yeah, I mean, frankly, I, they, I was impressed that they stayed out as long as they did. And they, they only convicted me of not even half the charges. Mm. Um, but but the, not on evidence. It was on the the, the optics of the of the of the uh, case and in the testimony of people who didn't tell the truth. Do you lend any credence to any of the theories that something fishy happened with uh, Jeffrey Epstein? There were a lot of theories that said somebody like Jeffrey Epstein could never have been left alone long enough to to kill himself when he was that high profile of a prisoner. You were similarly situated. You were almost an Epstein level profile prisoner. Do you have any theories about what happened with Epstein, given the fact that you saw this from a different perspective than most of us? Well, actually, I saw it from the same perspective because having, I had to go to New York to be arraigned, uh, and I was in the the, uh, the uh, solitary confinement for for one week at the MCC, and uh, w- you know I, there were two other prisoners up in that floor on the four cells. One of them was El Chapo, and the other was Jeffrey Epstein, hmm. and uh, and uh, it's pretty hard to to do kill himself in the in the cell that the cell that I saw I only saw my cell uh, I wouldn't have been able to hang myself with anything uh, but you know frankly I mean I I saw the guards not paying attention not, you know they weren't doing the checks they weren't monitoring on me so I I could easily believe they weren't monitoring him as well um, and the guy literally was picked up on a private jet coming in from Paris and brought to the MCC and stuck in solitary confinement. That had to be quite a shock for him. Yeah, this is a guy who lived a pampered life, and uh, this was the exact opposite extreme. And uh, he may not have been able to handle that. I don't know. I can imagine. Tell me your reaction when you were pardoned by President Trump in uh, December of 2020. Did you know it was? Did you know it was coming? Where were you? Who gave you the news? How did you react? I, I was at home. I was at. I was at. Home. I was on home confinement. I because of COVID, I was. I was able to get out of uh, of, of the prison to to home confinement. 
uh, the five months before I was pardoned. And uh, that's a whole different story. But uh, I never, you know, they, they, a lot of people said, oh, you had your deal with Trump. I never had, I never had a deal with Trump. I, I mean, I hoped and prayed that he would do what I thought would be the right thing. But I didn't, I didn't have an understanding with anybody. And, uh, and there were many times when people were getting pardoned that I wasn't on the list. And, I, you know, I, I didn't take that positively. I took, I was worried that maybe I was going to be bypassed or maybe he'd wait till his second term was over. Uh, and so I didn't know. And, uh, when, uh, when the pardon finally did come, I found out about it that day from a reporter <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I was sort of carefully monitoring it until lunchtime when it it was on the news everywhere that I was going to be on a list that afternoon. And, uh, and that night uh, it, it, it came out and, uh, it was a great thing. I was with my family, and it was a very emotional moment. As it stands now, now you have been a lawyer since the 70s and a very well-respected lawyer. No, uh, uh, no formal reprimands by the bar from, any, or from anything that I can tell. As it stands now, what is the status of your law license? Are you able to practice law and do everything that you did prior to your conviction? No. In D.C., I was, uh, uh, I was disbarred for the conviction. Um, interestingly, Kevin Kleinsmith, the FBI uh, agent who, uh, who was convicted of for, of uh, falsifying the FISA application. That was finally the one that the court approved to monitor Carter page and, and the Trump campaign uh, under uh, the Biden administration. Uh, he was, he, he, he was, uh, uh, not, not pardoned, but he, he meant the minimum sentence. And then the, the DC bar on its own initiative reinstated him. Wow. Wow. No, I, I, even on my initiative, I couldn't get reinstated in the DC bar, but they decided on their own that it, you know, they, this guy who was convicted of falsifying the, the application to a FISA court to surveil an American, he was, uh, his, his bar license was returned. So uh, it's again, the hypocrisy of the swamp. As it stands now, what's Paul Manafort doing today? What are you hoping to do ne- next other than writing this book and hoping people buy it? Well, I'm spending time with family and true friends, which you start to appreciate a lot more if you go through what I did. And that's really been my number one one advocation. Uh, and I am starting to do some business. I am helping people. Uh, I'm not active in the way I was. Uh, but there are, th- there are activities that I'm now starting to undertake and uh, – and I'm probably going to get, I mean, the book is my main business right now. Uh, I'm pretty much finished with it. And I'm, as I said, talking to people, I may activate myself somewhat in the next couple of months. One, uh, just a couple of weeks after you were pardoned, um, w- world headlines focused on what happened in the Capitol on January 6th. A lot's been discussed about that. A lot's been debated about that. What are your thoughts overall on the January 6th riot? Well, again, it's the hypocrisy of the uh, of the left. And first of all, there are people in prison today who attended that rally to to protest, not to do anything violent, and they're in jail now. Some of them are in jail. Uh, you know, we're not even being convicted yet. They're in jail pending ca- cases being brought. That's outrageous. Uh, people expressing their opinion. Number two, what I find very hypocritical. 
the Pelosi's and Schumer's of this world who who talk about the sanctity of the election results and and the key to our democracy being to uh, recognize the election results, still haven't recognized the 2016 election. They've never recognized Trump's victory, and yet here they are telling Trump in a very contest in a very you know a number of places where there are very questionable activities, that he should just suck it up. Mm-hmm. Now, whether you believe he should or not, again, it's the hypocrisy of the of the Democrats on the left to say that it's, uh, you should suck it up when, you're, when we win and when we lose, it's okay to not suck it up. Another country that you have a lot of experience in politically is Ukraine. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask you about what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with Paul Manafort, my guest for the hour, longtime political consultant, former chairman of the Trump campaign, now a free man. And he's written about all of his adventures, all of his trials and tribulations, quite literally, in the book, Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, but not silenced. You can get it, uh, but you can pre-order it at Amazon.com. We'll continue straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano here on 77 WABC. The whole world is fixated and focused on what's happened in Ukraine. The Russian invasion is uh, still going strong. A lot of people dead on both sides. A lot of people forced to flee their homes. And I'm very, very privileged to be joined by someone who has extensive experience working in Ukraine, in Ukrainian politics, and has been... Uh, portrayed by some as a little bit of a villain in terms of this uh, Ukraine-Russia war, and that is Paul Manafort, longtime political consultant, former chairman of the Trump campaign, and author of the book Political Prisoner, which uh, is going to be available in August, but you can pre-order it on Amazon. Uh, Paul, just so folks understand your background when it comes to Ukrainian politics. Uh, I know that you were an advisor at various times to the former Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych. One of my favorite guests on the subject was of Russia was Professor Stephen Cohen. He had always said that he felt you kind of got a bad rap when it came to how you were portrayed as sort of a Putin stooge. He said, and I'm hoping you can clarify what the record actually is, that you were actually urging Yanukovych to take a more Western tilt in his agenda as opposed to a more Russian tilt. And Yanukovych was not by any means a Putin puppet at the time that he first ran and the time that you worked with him. Is Professor Cohen right about that? Or what was your role in Ukrainian politics? Well, he was 100 percent right about it. My, uh, my role in the politics, I ran you know, four parliamentary elections and a presidential campaign there, got to know the country extremely well. Uh, I think I know it better than Putin does right now, which I'll tell you talk about in a minute. And when I got involved, what was very important to me, because Ukraine was, I thought, very important geopolitically, that uh, that it needed to become part of Europe and the European Union, and for a lot of reasons, which I go into in the book. I also felt that because Ukraine is two countries, how that was going to happen was going to be very complicated. Ukraine is a com- there's the, the eastern part, which is Russian ethnic Ukrainians, and the western part of Ukraine is basically European, Hungarian, Romanian uh, Ukrainians. The eastern European, I mean, the eastern part uh, of the country, the Russians, the Russian ethnics there were very protective of their language, very protective of their culture, very protective of their R- Russian Orthodox faith, but they also were very protective of their, their freedom. And what I found in all of my polling was that Eastern Ukrainian Russian ethnics 
did not want to be part of Russia. They wanted to be part of a united Ukraine. They were Ukrainian nationalists, and they saw more hope in their future in the part becoming part of the West, not part of Russia. Like Nixon was the only one to could open up China back in the, in the 70s, I felt that somebody from eastern Ukraine was the only one who could bring Ukraine into Europe in a credible way without having a revolution in the country. And frankly, I ended up being correct on that. And Yanukovych, when he was elected president, uh, spent all of his time as president changing the, the laws, the regulations, the legal system, the economic system to comport with European rules and regulations uh, to make formal application. And that was a very contentious process. The Europeans didn't make it easy. Yanukovych put all the power of his presidency behind it. And we almost were near the end of the of the process when Putin finally woke up and realized Yanukovych was really going to side the, 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 the association agreement, which was the trade agreement, which was the forebearer of the, uh, the of the of joining the European Union. And in a week before Yanukovych was supposed to sign it, uh, Putin basically said, if you sign that document, this is all public information. None of this is private. It's all in the news. Putin said, you sign that document, I will shut down all trade with Ukraine, which was 70% of Ukraine's business. Uh, and so Putin, so Yanukovych, through me and others, reached out to Barossa and the European com uh, com uh, Commission and said, look, I need to have a bridge, bridge subsidies here during this period when Putin throws this trade agree, uh, trade sanctions on me. Uh, otherwise, I can't, uh, my country will fall apart. Then the Europeans said no. So Yanukovych said, okay, I can't sign it right now. I've got to work out this problem, but I'm going to sign it. The Europeans wouldn't cooperate and they just left him to his own. And instead of the, the couple of billion dollars subsidy that it would have cost and bring Ukraine in, you know, we've got the mess we have today. Mm. Uh, Putin hated Yanukovych. And and I, and I I had to have security guards when I was in Ukraine because he didn't like me either. He blamed me for what I was doing, uh, for what was happening. Uh, and so that's why I never took seriously when it first came out that there was Russian collusion and I was the link to Russia because it was such a joke. And, and again, everything I, to I just said and more is in the public domain. Right. It, you don't have to be doing hard research to understand this, as Cohen said. And uh, but it didn't fit the narrative. And so all of that history was ignored. And just the fact that uh, I was in that part of the world made me the link led to. And this is where, where the Durham investigation is starting to connect these dots. I mean, he's showing in some of his early indictments and the motions and the, and the filings that he's doing, you know, the, the, the case. It was, was exactly flipped. If you want to know what the Democrats are doing, just look at what they're saying we're doing, because that's usually what's happening uh, on their part. And he's, he's showing that. And the Ukrainian part is part of that whole uh, story, narr narrative that's coming out as well. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with this, but the prosecutors in your case allege that between 2010 and 2014, you made $60 million from working in Ukraine. Is that about right? I mean, I, honestly, I don't know how much it was. I mean, but the numbers they were using, I was, the, I managed a whole bunch of things, including the lobbyists who were filed and were rep doing the lobbying, not me, uh, in Washington. And, uh, and so they took the lump sum money as if it was all coming into my pocket. And it, I was running a major enterprise of, of, of lobbyists in Europe to become part of Ukraine, lobbyists in Washington to, to, to help them understand 
what was going on and what Ukraine was trying to do to become part of the European Union, uh, as well as political consulting as a number of things as well. So that number, I, and I don't know if 60 is correct over those four years or not, but, but that was well. not all my money. It, Got it. I, I did well I, and, and openly did well. I didn't I didn't hide it. You were also blamed or credited as being the reason that the GOP platform in 2016 softened some of its language on Russia. <laughs> Was that your doing? Did you uh, yeah. make the, the GOP yeah. a little bit uh, easier on Russia? First of all, the the language that was adopted was the language that was in the platform that was drafted by the RNC platform committee that's then given to uh, the full convention and the convention committee then can deal with it and amend it. And there was an amendment on lethal aid to Ukraine that a cruise delegate in, in a subcommittee on foreign policy tried to amend the language of I never even heard of it until the convention was long over and somebody asked me what was go- what, would, what had happened on that. So not only did we not change the platform, it was the platform the RNC originally submitted, but I never was even aware that the, uh, the, there was an attempt to amend it. it and, and again, they, they, the, Joe Gordon, who handled this for the campaign committee, uh, and, uh, and the delegate, the cruise delegate, they all told the special counsel this. Uh, but that narrative wasn't exciting. It needed to be that I had ordered the the, the softening, and the softening was was the language basically said appropriate assistance to Ukraine to defend itself against Russian aggression, and the amendment was going to be instead of appropriate, lethal. Uh, so the difference was lethal or appropriate. Both both of the the, the options were were much more pro Ukraine than the Democratic platform or the Obama policy, which was not even to give appropriate assistance. It was to give, uh, you know, just basically blankets and food. One of the things that uh, Professor Cohen did say for the years that the Mueller probe was going on is that he felt that uh, Donald Trump really wanted, and he campaigned this way in 2016, to have a better relationship with Russia, to have detente and something that would uh, not only serve both countries well, but serve people people in places like Ukraine and Syria well. Uh, but that the Mueller probe and this myth that he was somehow a Russian agent or colluding with Russian agents to getting elected made him much tougher on Putin and Russia than he otherwise would have been. Is that a narrative that you agree with? Well, I don't think Trump would have ever allowed Putin to take any territory from Ukraine, for example. Um, I, I think Trump felt, you know, he saw, he knew who the bad guys in the world were, in Iran, in Russia, in China, in North Korea. And he had a strategy for each of them. And all of the strategies were focused on getting to know them one-on-one uh, because he felt that if any of these world leaders knew him one-on-one, they would understand what he said he meant, unlike what they're doing, how they treat Biden and what what Biden says. Uh, And so personal diplomacy was a key part of his strategy, and it would have been more so with Putin, I think, uh, uh, than it, it could be. But even then, he didn't allow the media to disrupt him trying to do it. It, it's, uh, but it just wasn't as effective. Give me your thoughts on the war that's going on now and uh, the best best case scenario at this point, what you hope happens and what the worst case scenario is at this point. Well, I mean, I, I the worst case is the, the country is going to be destroyed uh, because Putin's approach 
is to just carpet bomb it because the people are never going to give in. As I said a while ago, they want to be they want to be free. They cherish their freedom and they know what freedom means in the Russian definition. People are never going to give in. Afghanistan is going to look like a a cakewalk compared to what Ukraine will be like if you if if Putin does get control of the country. Number one. In the best case, you know, Putin ends up trying to cut a deal to legitimize Crimea. The pressure the West will put on on Zelensky will be you give up Crimea, let Eastern Ukraine be uh, independent uh, independent provinces, and and you can go back to governing your country. That's that's the West best case. That would be a failure as well. Uh, if Putin is able to to legitimize what he's done to that country and not be held accountable for the genocide he's committed, uh, then the West will have just created more moments of, for the future of Putin's aggression going into places like Moldova, Georgia, Estonia. And, and the Poles understand this, for example. They know if, if Putin gets away with this, they're the border now, and they're not comfortable with that at all, which means they're not comfortable with their comrades in the East, I mean, in Western Europe, protecting them. Uh, so we should be giving the MiGs. We should be allowing the, the getting more weapons into uh, into Ukraine. We need to make this fight be as difficult for Putin as it possibly can be, uh, because the people are never going to give up. How and about we a, have to be there for them. How about Zelensky's request for a no-fly zone? Is that something Biden should do? And that, and look, there's no difference between a no-fly zone and a javelin. It's just a different tool, and uh, and and we definitely should do that. And we we're, he's willing to. You know, we should give them drones with 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 uh, you know, payloads that can uh, cause damage. We should let them have get the MIGs that they can fly over their own territories. They're willing to defend themselves. They're not saying come in and help us. They just need the tools to defend them, and they got it under Trump. And the weapons that they've been winning the ground game on over the last three weeks are weapons that Trump delivered to them, not that Biden has delivered. Biden's weapons. Still haven't gotten there. You're surprising a lot of people. Uh, someone who a lot of folks thought was a, a Russian patsy saying we need to set up a no-fly zone and take the fight to Putin and Russia. I think this is uh, surprising a lot of listeners across the political spectrum. I want to take one quick break. When we come back, I want to ask uh, Paul Manafort about the midterms and the 2024 presidential race. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Talking to Paul Manafort straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano in our final few minutes with Paul Manafort, the former chairman of Donald Trump's political campaign, someone that was pardoned by him after a criminal conviction, and the author of the forthcoming book, Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, But Not Silenced. Uh, Paul, you've got a lot of experience as, uh, as we've been covering in presidential politics. What does your gut tell you about whether or not Donald Trump is going to run again in 2024? Well, I mean, I don't know if he's made his decision, but Biden's helping him make it. That's for sure. I mean, you, you look at Trump's successes and you know, all the important issues on the issue agenda of today, uh, and Biden's viewed as a failure, and Trump's policies are viewed as winners. And, and so, uh, a real a campaign in 24, if Trump were to run, simply has to show his record, what he did and show Biden's failed record and what he didn't do and, and how they've affected the American people. And the case makes itself, uh, you know, the, 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 the Democrats are going to try and make it an issue of personality again. And, uh, but I, I don't think they'll get away with it. I think in 2024, 
the record is going to be important and people's lives are going to be, if they're bad now, they're going to be worse in three years. Inflation's not going away. Uh, and, and the border problem is not going away. Energy independence is not going, is not going to happen again to this watch. Uh, and now the world is not a safer place. Everything Trump succeeded in putting together in four years or in three years, really, because he spent a year dealing with COVID, you know, Biden is undone in 12 months. Do you think Trump should run again? That's that's a personal decision that he has to make. I, I think if he does run, uh, there'll be a groundswell of support. I've been I've been speaking out lately, going around the country, talking to different groups, Republican groups, uh, some public uh, groups as well, and they still love him. And, uh, and they're you know I you're right. I don't go to New York to give speeches, uh, but uh, but places where an election can be won. They still love him. Well, in and, New York, uh, I got to tell you, in our listening area, uh, there are a lot of places where Trump's still quite popular. In uh, Staten Island, for instance, parts of Long Island, uh, parts of the Hudson Valley. Uh, Donald Trump's a rock star in a lot of different places that are not uh, Manhattan, the Bronx, or Brooklyn. I'll, I'll tell you that. Even parts of Queens, even parts of Brooklyn, actually, uh, Donald Trump is still pretty popular. If Assuming Trump decides for personal reasons not to run, just looking at it, not in terms of your personal preferences, but as a political analyst, who do you think the strongest Republican candidate is in 2024? Well, I mean, you know, candidates get strong as as they get into the, the primary process. I mean, we have a group of attractive candidates who can develop uh, very nicely. I mean, certainly everyone talks about DeSantis. Uh, you've also with Florida, you've got Rubio who would like to take a look at it again. Ted Cruz would like to take a look at it again. Um, some of the governors. Uh, you know, it would, uh, you know, from out west, actually, uh, could be credible candidates. Uh, so we we're going to have another large group if Trump doesn't run, and and they will be accomplished, successful politicians. Uh, and on the right side, right now, of the issues that are are moving people in our country, such as you know education, you know, the the, the race in Virginia opened up. You know, a, a lot of territory for Republicans to appeal again to parents and to suburbs and, and women voters. Um, and so who runs the great campaign? And we've got a number of people who could and emerges, I think, will be probably the leading candidate. I also think that in 22, the Democrats are going to take a licking. And, uh, and what's going to happen, in my judgment, is the left, which has been gradually consolidating power, is going to take over the Democratic Party. And I'm talking about the woke left, not just the moderate left. And when that happens, I think the their their issue agenda, like right now under Biden, is going to be so extreme that it's going to affect the, the American people in a very major way. And the kind of right now, when you look at the gen, generic ballot on Republican versus Democrat for the 22 elections, usually Democrats have a four or five point lead about right now. Republicans have a seven point lead. I mean, that's landslide territory for Republicans. I think that same kind of, of d- distinction will be true in a generic question on the presidency uh, in 2023 and 24, if the left hijacks the uh, Democratic Party, which I think they're going to do. So needless to say, you think Republicans win both houses of Congress in the midterms? I, I, I think they definitely win the House big. Uh, and I think the Senate, they should win. I mean, the Senate races end up being more more driven by local personalities and candidates, but but Republicans have are fielding a bunch of important good candidates. Uh, I think we could there are three or four races uh, that uh, we can pick up, and there's one or two that we could lose. So the net margin we could pick up 
with you know two to three seats possibly, and therefore take control of the Senate because we only need one. The um, if if the president, former president Donald Trump, does choose to run again, and he were to seek your advice, what advice would you give him this time around? What should he do differently? What should he do the same? What should he do this time around um, as opposed to twenty 2020 twenty or twenty sixteen? Well, I mean, he ran an incredible campaign in twenty sixteen. As I said, he was everything. He was the campaign manager, the candidate, the uh, candidate, the pollster. Uh, in, in 2020, he, he was mired down by having to govern a, a pandemic where he was working, you know, 24 seven to try and figure out how to how to handle it, which he figured out. I mean, the Biden COVID strategy was to take Trump's strategy and just run with it. Uh, <clears throat> in 2024. I think he goes back to his record, what he what he was trying to do in twenty in twenty twenty, but for COVID, which is show his success because his issue agenda is still the issue agenda of the American people. The difference is that the Democrats have had the, have been the, the people on the watch and they've ruined the the, the American people's uh, be- benefits from those policies uh, in one year. So I can imagine what it's going to be like in three more years. So Trump needs to just focus on here's what I did. I'm going to do it again. This is what the Democrats are doing. They don't represent you. Putting aside, and then you can putting aside the merits of the uh, claims about election fraud and so forth in the 2020 election. Politically, do you think it's a mistake for President Trump to focus on election fraud as much as he is? Well, the American people have moved on, and I mean, I think Trump Trump feels that we have to have. Uh, sanctity of, of elections in order to have credibility of elections. And, but, but frankly, the states have been doing that in the last two years. They're changing election laws to deal with some of the issues that Trump claims were, were caused some fraud and, and may have decided the state, state elections results. So the, the states are dealing with the solution. He's made the case. People, you, you look at polling, people understand his position on this. I think it's time now for him to, and, and not time yet, but after the 22 elections, it's time for him to focus people on what he achieved and what Biden has failed at, uh, because that's how he'll get reelected or elected. Finally, Paul, what is life like for you now? You mentioned making a lot of money in, in Ukraine and elsewhere. You mentioned the fact that the Weissman strategy and your prosecution seemed to be to bankrupt you. We've seen images of you going into court uh, not looking too healthy at all. What's life like for you now? You mentioned you're spending a lot of time with your family. You're uh, promoting this book. You're putting the finishing touches on this book. You're meeting with a couple of groups. Uh, are you financially secure? Are you healthy? What's Paul Manafort's life like today? Well, I am. I'm getting. I'm healthy, and I'm getting healthier. Uh, I'm spending time with my family. I. I honestly don't dwell on the past. I almost didn't write this book because I had moved beyond it. I had faith. I kept me strong. My family kept me strong. I don't have anger in me. Um, I, I have resolve, but I don't have anger. And and so I almost didn't write the book. And so many people said you really need to tell the story. They don't know who you are, and they don't know what they did to you, which they could do to other people. And that's what persuaded me to do it. But I'm happy right now. I'm, I'm satisfied with my, my, my life. Uh, yeah, I, they, they did bankrupt me, basically. And, uh, and that's why, you know, the book will be important. And, uh, and I will do some things. I'm not going to work like I did before, uh, traveling the world, running four or five campaigns a year around the world. Um, but I, I will pick and choose some things. A lot of people want me to, uh, 
uh, to to help them on on projects of theirs, some campaigns, and and some and speeches. There's a, there's been a growing interest in me coming and speaking. So I'm putting all of that together. Last year, the first year I was out, I spent my time sort of digging through the mess. I mean, you know, I had no credit cards, I had no bank accounts, uh, and and getting them was very hard. And uh, and I've pretty much gotten myself, shall we say. Uh, at the ground level now, and, and uh, I'm going to gradually start to expand my activity again. But frankly, most of my attention is is focused on my family, my grandkids, my wife, who was just a champion for me the whole way, uh, and my friends. Well, uh, best of luck to you, Paul. And uh, I think it's a crime what happened to you. And uh, I would say that if you were a campaign advisor to Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, George Bush, whomever. And uh, I I think it's a real shame uh, that uh, more people who are not Trump supporters haven't uh, said the same thing. Uh, Thanks so much for the time this morning. And I hope we can do this again soon. I'd like to do it, Frank. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, give me a call. 1-800-848-WABC. Until next hour, keep asking questions.